Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Welcome to Surviving Society Spotlight season. My name is Luke Dean Arona and I'm the guest host of this episode. I've been on the podcast a couple of times to discuss my own work, so I'm, I'm milking it a bit by hosting a session. But I'm really excited to be hosting a session with Professor Vron Ware. So Vron, if you can introduce yourself, and maybe tell people a little bit about what you do. I've been a professor at Kingston University in the Department of Sociology and Criminology for a few years now. I've taught in various different places and I've written a number of books. The first one I think we might talk about in a minute is called Beyond the Pale, White Women, Racism and History. I've continued to write about racism and gender, feminism and the politics of militarism. And most recently, I'm writing about what the countryside means. What is the meaning of rural England and how does that fit in the question of where we are all now? Thanks so much for that, Veron. Um, yeah, I mean, you've you've written a lot of excellent stuff. So we're going to try and get through some of those key questions, but we won't be able to, to cover everything. I really encourage people listening to the podcast to go and read as much of Veron's work as you can. I really wanted to speak to Veron for this podcast because of my own feeling that, that you aren't read widely enough, actually, and that includes myself. Your writing itself, not only the, the topics you cover, but your writing itself is such joy to read, beautiful writings. Yeah, I really recommend people go and, go and check it out and get stuck in because it's not, it's not hard work like a lot of academic stuff. It's really beautifully put together on, as you say, a lot of the key issues that the listeners of Surviving Society are interested in, racism, nationalism, feminism, uh, whiteness and militarism. And my own in, in instinct is that some of the issues you work on are not talked about enough and some of them on the other hand have been talked about in different ways since you published on them so I'm thinking about conversations about white womanhood and whiteness but then also um, have been talked about a lot more since since beyond the pale in different circles and then your work more recently on the armed forces and on war I feel like there's some key areas for people studying thinking about and struggling against racism that, that don't always come up as often as they should and I know Surviving Society have had people on the podcast talking about issues of war and uh, hopefully we can contribute to that with a slightly different angle today. Okay, so let's start with your first book, which, as you say, is Beyond the Pale, uh, White Women, Racism and History. And maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how this book came to be. Yeah, thank you, Luke. And thanks for setting this up. It's really, really great to be able to talk to you like this. I do talk about how I came to write Beyond the Pale in... Um, a recent book called Revolutionary Feminisms, which I was very happy to be included in, published by, uh, edited by Brenna Bandar and Rafif Ziadeh. I worked as a journalist at Searchlight, the anti-fascist, anti-racist magazine, for six years in the late 1970s. I'd gone there because it's hard to know where to start, really, but but basically the, the, the National Front, which was mm. the biggest far-right organisation at that time, had decided to fight in elections and they decided they were going to kick their way into the headlines and get publicity mm. regardless. So there were massive demonstrations happening uh, throughout the period from the, the sort of 76, 77 onwards. That was their strategy. So it was very mm. hard. It was impossible to ignore it. Yeah. So I decided I want to be a writer, which is basically how I see myself as a writer. So I really mm. appreciate what you just said about <laughs> the writing. I decided I wanted to work on an anti-racist magazine and I didn't even know there was one but I very quickly got pointed towards Maurice Ludmer in Birmingham and Searchlight and I just turned up and talked to Maurice and began to work there. So within a quite a short time I was steeped in the publications and the sort of discourse of the far right and noticed very early on that there was very little representation of women, very little representation of white women in their structures, their leadership, their materials, propaganda. However, in their propaganda, the word white coupled with women was all over the place, was all over the front page. White women this, white women that. And, you know, the word white to describe in sort of white supremacist language, white meant white supremacy. 
people didn't often use the word white. It's almost like it wasn't polite. It's it's very, very different from the, the way people talk and think about race in the United States, for example. So I kept seeing this word and thinking about it. And pretty soon, I'd only been there about a year when Maurice Ludmer asked if I would write a pamphlet on women and fascism, which was a fantastic commission because it allowed me to write something for myself, do the research and publish it. So at the end of 1978, my pamphlet, Women in the National Front, came out. That really looked at a number of different angles of this kind of propaganda. So, you know, the stuff about abortion, stuff about race mixing, stuff about white women being the most vulnerable to attacks on the street by black muggers. You know, it was a very, very powerful coupling, white women. Hopes of the white race were pinned on white women having white mm. children with white men. Mm. And also white women were the most vulnerable to the survival of, of the race. So that was really that, what that was about. But Beyond the Pale took 12 years to come out after that. Wow. And one of the reasons it took so long was, obviously at the time there were a lot of, there were, there were discussions amongst um, feminists about racism and there was a group called Women Against Racism and Fascism, which was you know, a wonderful development for a while. But after the election of 1979, when Thatcher got in, a lot of the women those women in those groups kind of melted away and they felt like, okay, race, the threat of fascism has been dealt with for now. We can move on and think about how we're going to deal with this new breed of conservatives who are in power. But meanwhile, the, you know, the issues of institutional racism and, you know, the changing of the nationality bill, tightening of immigration regulations, there were, there were just the virginity tests at the airport. Things mm. were getting more and more horrific. So that was sort of kind of where I began thinking about these issues. And, you know, writing not just the pamphlet, but we wrote leaflets. We were trying to articulate a politics around race for feminists, for women who weren't necessarily black or Asian or, or mm -hmm. you know, or, or black, really. That was the understanding at the time. If you weren't, if you weren't white, you were black in the, around that time. And I was just thinking that didn't Amrit Wilson's Finding a Voice come out that year? So there must have there was stuff going on. I mean, I don't I don't want to romanticize the past, but that year seventy eight when your pamphlet comes out is also policing the crisis. And I think Amrit Wilson's book on Finding a Voice. So there was the conversation was. Oh yeah, it was definitely a conversation, and I mean, it was really frustrating. It was like Finding a Voice was just wonderful. I remember being introduced to. Amrit Wilson and feeling really shy. I was so <laughs> happy to see the book and I, I'd been to India and I'd been very, that was one of the ways in which I came to this was through having been to India and realising what, what was at stake and Britain's mm -hmm. past and so on and so forth and why I wanted to live in Birmingham. There was huge discussion, it was Rock Against Racism, the Anti-Nazi mm -hmm. League, there was a huge awareness of, of the issues. It wasn't that people didn't know, it's just they didn't mm -hmm. know what to say about it. So writing about race in that, I wasn't really positioned alongside anyone very much, but there were beginning to be interventions from black feminists. And, you know, I was in conversation with many of those people as individuals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was really fantastic. And also other, you know, there were a few, few people who were beginning to write about race who were not necessarily writing from black feminist position. And so for the listeners who haven't read Beyond the Pale, and I recommend that they really should go and read Beyond the Pale. What what do you think the book kind of brings, and, and what it what, what does it offer? Beyond the Pale is interesting because, as you say, it came it came out a while ago. It came out in the in the nineties. Mm -hmm. I didn't talk about whiteness. It wasn't like let's all think about whiteness as an mm -hmm. abstract concept. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. It came out in parallel to at the same time or just before Ruth Frankenberg. And I remember hearing about Ruth when I was living in the state. I was, lived in the states for a few months in nineteen ninety. Mm -hmm. And actually, Hazel Carby told me about her because Ruth had written to Hazel to ask if she would read her manuscript. And I thought, oh gosh, what's this about? So I talked to Ruth, and Ruth had been motivated by exactly the same things as me in a, in mm -hmm. a way that she'd been alienated from discussions around race and gender in Manchester, and that right. she'd only found a way of, of really working through these when she was based at Santa Cruz mm -hmm. in California. And she, you know, this was her PhD, so she, she did proper sort of, you know, qualitative research and interviews and so on and so forth. So she had a very different approach. And I should also say she had a very different publisher. Mm. So hers was more conventional sort of sociology, but, you know, no less valuable. But I talked to her on the phone, and which was really nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the way, when you don't know somebody, you ring them up and say, well, what's your book about? Mm. And she said, um, tell me what it was about. 
and I remember talking to her about the idea that when I talked about whiteness, it was very, I won't say painful, but it was, it was kind of excruciating on some level that you're saying mm. their word, you know, the mm. word that they reserve for very particular meanings around purity, around, you know, racial particularity, mm. uh, carries enormous violence. Mm. I remember Bell Hooks giving a talk once in London about whiteness as terror, and she upset a lot of people doing that. But, you know, I was also in conversation with her as well, you know, about, you know, how to think about things, from what perspective, what kind of materials do you start to take apart, things we take for granted, you know, how do you get to see through them, to question them. So for me, you know, that was the National Front's language, you know, white women, mother's yeah. main target, that was their language. Yeah. So how to take that idea of what that whiteness means and you think about it in everyday parlance in ways we don't people don't really sort of question or think about and to not really allow the word whiteness to become normal in every day to always mm. keep that sense of danger of course we lost that battle a long time ago but that was part of my of my sense of how it worked and then i i've always looked very much at sort of visual materials and things that like adverts and things that mm. and, and, and things you find lying around and sort of to question juxtaposition of figures and what messages those are giving, you know, or, or, or asking to be read as sort of normative. I mean, they were some of my favourite bits in the book. The, the bit about the person, I can't remember her name, who owned Body Shop and was one of the top 20 richest people oh, in the yes, UK. Oh, yes, erotic, yes. They're just some fascinating descriptions. And this is what I'm, I'm this is a, a way of writing that's really beautiful and then sort of entertaining, even though very disturbing a lot, a lot of the way in which you... Yeah, just kind of nice descriptions of, of things that reveal something. I think that's a really good way of writing something that's pedagogical, that teaches people rather than, you know, sort of a systematic, this is what's been written and this is what this is what my book's doing. It's it's kind of it was it was really nice the way it unravels. It's a skillful a skillful. Well, thank text. you, Luke. You know, I wasn't teaching in university. I I'd, I'd actually run a million miles away from university after I left in um nineteen seventy four. I didn't have a good experience at university. And okay. I think I'd, I'd, also, I'd always been like an academic child and I never really knew what the word academic meant, but I, mm. it was always applied to me. But for me, it was something that was quite sterile. And, and mm. I mean, when I, I did a bit of sociology just before I left, I was allowed to switch from what I was doing. And there was the young Anthony Giddens in his leather jacket sort of. Right. Um, <laughs> talking to us about uh, Bruno Bettelheim and... And, and life in the camps and it was really interesting but I felt very frustrated by it I felt like sociology was about describing the world as it is not about making a new world right and that's something I got from reading Beyond the Pill as well and actually it was only in our pre-chat that you explained to me that you weren't an academic for the long process of for the 10 or 12 years of writing this book which now makes more sense when I go back because there is a more kind of insurgent tone in it it's very political and it's the way I've tried to right as well and, and I've been critical of kinds of sociological work which put often you know um, I suppose I'm thinking about this a bit at the moment but that literature which puts diverse neighborhoods and non-white peoples under a kind of microscope for analysis without any sense of why it matters or what the politics are whereas you read beyond the pale and you get a sense that this is kind of an urgent set of questions for different groups of people that you're among whether they're feminists, anti-racists, people on the left who are or are not in conversation and you're kind of looking to find an archive that helps us ask some new questions and find some different answers in, in an anti-racist feminist struggle against against war and nationalism and patriotism and all these forces. So that I, I really enjoyed returning to that. One of the things I think is most important is being able to think historically, mm. you know, to, to refer to history and to unlock questions that we're dealing with today and I, I wasn't a historian I think I mm -hmm. did history a level but I didn't do very well in it I was really badly taught you know it's like a it's like a trail you start off with something and someone tells you something you think oh that's interesting and then you go in those days we had bookshops you know if you can imagine a compendium compendiums all over I'm not compendium houseman's all over London so compendium mm. was the Camden version and you could go in there and discover books it wasn't just you went to get something I can remember going in there and finding uh, IDB Wells's autobiography Crusade mm -hmm. for Justice. You know, you, you remember sort of reaching up, taking it off the shelf. It's mm -hmm. really exciting, taking it home and looking at it. And then I'd heard about Catherine Impey, who's a very important figure, who was a, a Quaker 
anti-racist, anti-imperialist, who put together her own compendium, really, of um, anti-imperialist newspaper cuttings and information and, and correspondence in a magazine called, was it a magazine? It's a sort of paper called Anticast mm. in the 1880s and 1890s. And I heard about her from someone called Martin Durham, who had been at Birmingham University because, you know, it's, it's a fairly small city and mm -hmm. the people at the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies, you know, there was a number of feminists there who were mm -hmm. part of, who set up the, the, the Birmingham group against women against racism and fascism. So, we, you know, we were all in conversation with each other. Right. And they'd also been working on a, on a pamphlet for, about women and fascism. So Martin Durham was a member of that group and he mentioned anti-caste and, you know, you, you sort of pick up these things mm. and start putting them together and asking questions and then following a trail. And then with that, with Catherine Impey, she became something of a, an obsession because it was just so fascinating. And another friend of mine who was a filmmaker, Mandy Rose, she wrote an application to the new Channel 4 for us to get money to do a, a um, like a drama about Catherine mm -hmm. Impey and Ida B. Wells. And maybe you could say briefly a bit about Ida B. Wells in case people don't. Okay, so Ida B. Wells was an incredible figure, really. Mm -hmm. uh, she just actually has been awarded the Pulitzer Prize, which is uh, interesting. She she was a journalist and a writer, and she was the first person really to talk to really analyse lynching in mm -hmm. the 1890s. She's a young woman who saw through the whole premise that lynching was really a kind of response, understandable response of white communities to the assault of white women by black men. She saw through all that. She did documentation. Mm. She went through records. She interviewed people. She found that it was a form of sort of economic terrorism, of closing mm. down businesses, of forcing people out. Not only did she write about all that and, and got basically banished from the area of the South where mm. she'd grown up, but she, you know, the pain of her life, they said they would lynch her if she came back. She also helped organize boycotts of, um, you know, if a black business had been closed down through mm. this sort of uh, form of terror, racial terror, mm. um, black people would then boycott public transport, for example. Right. So she was, she was, she was incredible. And I think she died in, I think at the 19, 1930 something she died. Mm. So she lived quite a long life and, and did many different things, but she's, she's a really important figure to know about. Yeah. And, and she anyway, interacted. she came to. She was invited to England in the in mm. 1893 and 1894 to, to come and talk about lynching, and to help set up to be the sort of figurehead for setting up a, a campaign against lynching in this country, mm -hmm. to to campaign uh, from here, from the UK, right, uh, to have some impact on public opinion in the states. So anyway, so this you know you find these uh, stories and. We looked into it and we found the town in Somerset where Catherine lived and, and you know, went to libraries and the, the Friends House Library in uh, Euston Road that had some copies of Anticast. And, you know, fortunately, Caroline Bressy has done a fantastic job of, of documenting all that, that whole movement, that whole period, and particularly Catherine Impey's role in it. And that's a really wonderful resource. And she's done that subsequently. Um, so... You know, I had these stories and I knew they were important. And for example, the question of women's involvement in anti-slavery. I mean, people people kind of know that now, you take it for granted. But at the time, you barely knew about the abolitionist movement. You knew about William mm. Wilberforce, for example, and <laughs> you know, things like that. 1980s, I didn't know that women played a big role in anti-slavery. I certainly didn't know that, particularly in the US, that actually the women's movement came out of their experience mm. of of being active in the abolitionist movement. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know any of that history. And there, there were some books about it and people were beginning to explore that. So, you know, there's a lot of to and fro between, you know, getting books from the US and, and, and sort of asking questions about why people hadn't written about it before. Mm -hmm. You know, and then all the history on abolitionism was very much focused on what men did and throwaway remarks about women so then you have to think, well, it's not just about fitting women in, it's about retelling the story. I'm thinking, wait a minute, this changes it completely if you think that women were involved, both black women and white women were involved and in making particular kinds of arguments and drawing attention to particular aspects of, of experience. 
So that was another whole sort of investigation. You can see why mm. it took so long. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Never mind, you know, being sacked from Searchlight and having to find other kinds of jobs and start again and, you know, life, other aspects of life. This is the whole of the 80s. The 80s. And yeah. then, you know, the political climate change, the, yeah. the fragmentation of feminist politics, you know, the assertion of identity politics. So it became harder to talk about, you know, aspects of, you know, women's experiences if you, you know, if your identity didn't fit. Mm-hmm. So everything became very atomized, I would say. And also I moved to London and it was it was hard to find the same sort of sense right. of group of people to talk to you know, different kinds of jobs and so on. So, Mm. and doing the historical research, you know, you couldn't just sit on a computer and type in. I mean, I do think you can find out amazing things now Mm. that so much has been digitized, just sitting at home. Yeah. But there's nothing really beats going to a library and finding the original documents or, Mm. you know, even facsimiles, looking through newspapers. So it all took rather a long time. And so it, it finally fell into place. I'm actually... It, it was conceived as a book of essays, but, you know, I think books kind of tend to, if they're going to work, they tend to write themselves in ways you don't really realize. I mean, you probably mm-hmm. found that with your book, mm. that, that at a certain point, you kind of know what you're doing. Yeah. You know, I thought, well, there's an essay on, like, contemporary stuff and analyzing the whole thing around, you know, mugging and fear and policing mm. and just setting up the ideas. Uh, then obviously you might want to go chronologically from the abolitionist movement to slavery and start introducing that idea and looking at the records of women's anti-slavery committees and what they did. And then next one might be, well, you know, what about the empire? What what did sort of famous women, you know, feminists Mm. think about imperialism? How did that all fit in? So that's another Mm. set of stories. And then actually the research for that chapter was done by Mandy Rose, who was, you know, my collaborator, Originally, I mean, she really helped me put the book together because I really had trouble thinking about how, how is it going to work? You know, all these disparate stories. Mm-hmm. I know how they connect, but how are we going to put it together? Um, in the end, she didn't write any, but she did all the research for that chapter about Annette Ackroyd. Fascinating. I remember mm-hmm. someone saying to me afterwards that actually she thought Annette Ackroyd was a racist cow and she would never have given her the attention I gave her. But it was important to think about how that the ways in which her racism was manifest, even though she was sort of idealist at wanting to bring education to young Indian women, for example. The fact that she balked at the idea, you know, their customs were so different, was a really interesting thing to explore because yeah, it, yeah. it brought out that sense of the British imperial project being about, you know, actually really bringing Christianity and civilization to these less civilized people. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, really? Feminism is implicated in that? Well, yes. So then, you know, there are certain books called things like Victorian Feminism, not mention of empire, not not a mention. And the late 19th yeah. century is one of the most, or was, you know, and probably still is, is actually one of the most fascinating periods of, of ideas about gender and, and mm-hmm. history, social history. But race was never mentioned, empire was never, ever mentioned. And mm-hmm. obviously a lot of that's been been put right now, but at the time it was fascinating, really. It was just not, not, a, not a, a factor. Anyway, so that's another one, and then, and then there's a Catherine story, Catherine and Ida B. Wells story, and, and there are many other aspects to that story which are incredible. You know, I've actually just recently written something about Ida B. Wells again in relation to Frederick Douglass and Catherine Impey, in which I come at it from a very different angle. This is for a, a collection of writing about about Frederick Douglass to go with Isaac Julian's uh, installation, Lessons of the Hour. It's about reading between the lines in the letters they wrote to each other, which is another, I'm absolutely fascinated by letters, which is another amazing way to get at some of the tensions and nuances and struggles over ideas in the past. So, and then ending up thinking, well, what does this all have to say about feminism now? And by that time, I was I was so sort of out on a limb, really. I was once accused of being wildly optimistic at the end of it, saying, you know, feminism can deal with these things and we'll all be stronger when it... Well, I guess, I know, I probably convinced myself that would be true. And I'm sure on many levels it is. We're all much stronger if we can deal with more of these issues. I'm just going to start, you wrote a book, Out of Whiteness, along with Les Back, who's also been on Surviving Society, a friend of the programme, no doubt. And I just wanted to start, I was just returning to read Souls of White Folk, an essay by W.E.B. Du Bois written in 1920. And he says, the discovery of personal whiteness among the world's peoples is a very modern thing a 19th and 20th century matter indeed. 
which I think is really important and, and, and your work speaks to. And then the next page, which one of my favorite lines, he says, but what on earth is whiteness that one should so desire it? Then always, somehow, some way, silently but clearly, I am given to understand that whiteness is the ownership of the earth forever and ever. Amen. And I just like that forever and ever. Amen. I think it's yeah. kind of like a meme now. For... <laughs> <laughs> what did you see your intervention as? I mean, you hinted at it a little bit about whiteness and about how you felt about the term being really a term of white supremacists and how strange it felt to to begin to write about it so what's the book that you wrote with whiteness on the title about just before i mentioned i'd spoken to ruth frankenberg who was you know by that time very much based in the states but i would say a more important interlocutor was david rodiger and his book the wages of whiteness which comes straight from you know du bois's work and from that quote in fact Mm -hmm. that's a labor history which looks at ways in which different ethnic groups as they moved into the United States as, as workers in different sectors, different parts of the country, how they managed to you know, align themselves with those dominant white ethnic groups, particularly the Anglos and Germans, and, and, the, and they were part of the sort of construction of what it meant to be white by distancing themselves from African-Americans particularly, and often the Irish too. Mm. So Noel Ignatia was another historian who also wrote about the Irish becoming white. So David Rodigo, he published his book with Verso just before. So we were in touch. I think I wrote to him or he wrote to me. Or we, you know, just before Beyond the Pale, is this? Yeah. We wrote to each other and had a conversation going. And then I remember visiting Santa Cruz at a certain point and meeting John Hartigan Jr., whose book mm. Racial Situations has continues to be really, really important to me. And actually, mm. I use it when I'm teaching now mm. still. And he was a social anthropologist. There was beginning to be, suddenly, without people having met each other beforehand, all these books mm-hmm. around the idea of whiteness. Most of them in the US, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Not much from over here. So there was, it was a great conversation to be had. And things began to change very quickly. Whiteness studies became part of you know, a move in, the, in US academia to, mm-hmm. to have ethnic studies, which was a way of doing black studies. But it was ethnic, so it could be broken down into component parts. So whiteness studies was just became part of that quite quite quickly, right. you know, given how long it takes to bring in new subjects in a lot of um, academic settings. That idea seemed actually horrible <sighs> because it sort of enshrined the word whiteness as something which could be kind of looked at, studied, but not dismantled in any way. Mm-hmm. The contact with David Rodiger led me to, for a while I was an editor of Race Traitor, which I loved because, you know, they were all over in the States and I couldn't actually be part of any discussion I wanted to align myself with the project of abolishing whiteness, you know, right, not keeping okay. it something to be studied and and kind of improved, but to be mm. actually abolished. Because without the idea of whiteness, then the whole idea of the kind of hierarchy of racial categories kind of falls apart. That was the that was the idea put very simply. Yeah. So I kind of aligned myself with these other traditions or ways of thinking more radically about anti-racism. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, somebody I'd met Les and we'd really, you know, got a lot of talking to each other about, about his work, about his work, his field mm. work, urban ethnicities and really clicked. And we, we both felt we wanted to kind of protest against these new ways that people were thinking about whiteness as something which could be studied and improved yeah. and, and kind of cleansed. And that was creeping over here as well. You know, it was a very wonderful and remains, you know, partnership yeah, yeah. in terms of thinking about things and having the same discomfort at some of the developments and some of the same excitement at certain, you know, questions worth pursuing and other materials and other writers and so on. You know, I tend to, to write my obsessions and he wrote his obsessions. Yeah, yeah. I'm intrigued by the fact that the title, the spelling is a, of colour, is, is without a U. I think that's the book I'm probably proudest of mm. in terms of my writing and just the fact of being with Les and his writing yeah. and things he did and things, things that we t- did together. I think that, you know, it was a very difficult time, the second half of the 90s. Mm. You know, it was years and years of Thatcherism, and of course she'd gone, but, you know, other things were happening, and then you've got the beginning of new labour, um, and that sort of relief at the end of the Tories, but then like, oh God, now what have we got now, sort of feeling. Of course, way before the, um, the war. Mm. It came out after 9-11, but it was finished before then. So, mm. again, a very difficult time, different time. I think the main point of that book really is I'd moved away from thinking about feminism and how to intervene in feminist debates because that really wasn't such an issue for me at that time. It was really more about the politics and ethics of anti-racism. Right. It was about being an anti-racist and drawing on a different tradition 
exploring different traditions, different ancestors, people I felt mm. I admired and looked up to and trying to find, you know, strategies from the past from different countries where people had really understood what was at stake and mm. connecting different forms of racial injustice and and thinking of ways to and not just thinking of ways to kind of counter racism and and to campaign against it, but also to think about the cost of racism on the mm. people who propagated it or people who didn't really think about it what was the psychic cost because I went, I went down as a legal observer to one of the first BLM protests in London one of the early in the first weeks huge mobilization but I was intrigued by some of the signs and I don't know if this speaks to any of your interests but quite a lot of white silence is violence and things about white complicity and also one sign that I found very odd which said um, I will never understand but I stand and I was struck by the fact that, I don't know if this relates to you thinking about the ways in which the category of whiteness, it, we're so comfortable with it now. And I remember you saying, when I saw you speak at a Consented event, so shout out to Consented magazine, or now I think they're called Race in Britain now, but did these amazing events with a lot of young people there. And you, you were on a panel that was about whiteness, actually. And I, I remember you saying, and I was struck by it, racial categories are uncomfortable and we should remain more uncomfortable with them. And, I, and it was something like that that you said in, in, in a response to a question. And, and I kind of took that with me in my thinking and writing. But yeah, this, these kinds of signs then that say, you know, white silence, I was just intrigued by the way in which a protest that's about police murder of a black person then has to kind of come back around to what white people think and what they can or can't understand, which I just found quite, quite strange not something I would think of putting on a sign at a protest about, about state violence. So I don't know if that relates to any of your thinking on how languages around whiteness have changed and how, I mean, people talk a lot about, of course, kind of, you know, white fragility, white guilt, all these expressions that have become very much part of parlance around how people speak. But I wonder if they are part of condensing and simplifying what anti-racist struggle means, what it means to be involved, where, when people are so reflecting on their own kind of psychologies and psychoses as, as, of whiteness. Yes, I think, I mean, I think you've put your finger on something there. So mm -hmm. one of the things that, say, David Rodiger mm -hmm. and, and myself actually have, have liked quoting is James Baldwin, where he says at one point, as long as you think you're white, then there's no hope for you. <laughs> and then white is a capital W. Yeah. You know, and actually those distinctions are, are very significant. There's white and there's and there's white. Mm -hmm. Now we have ethnic monitoring. Some of the categorizations are like, you know, they go on for pages and you have to tick yeah. the box that you're in. <laughs> and you understand why we have to do it. But mm. it's really, really, really hard to tick the mm. box that says white. And that's not to disavow, you know, where one fits in a sort of schema of things to do mm. with health or, or whatever it is. I think that discomfort is is important about how you deal mm. with it then. I mean, I don't want to be prescriptive, mm. but that is one of the things I try and tackle in Out of Whiteness. And I look at other literature on whiteness to think about the kind of slipperiness and the very, very difficult category. And once you sort of pin it down and say, it means this, mm. and you either are or you aren't, then you're in trouble. And that's mm. why I liked John Hartigan, because he uses the concept of racial situations Right. It's like, when and where does race become an explanatory factor in your suffering, in your triumph, in your discomfort, whatever it is? What is a repertoire of stories, facts, factoids, whatever, that you bring mm. to bear on, on making sense of your predicament? So I tried to really deal with that. And then to I used the, the figure of John Howard Griffin, who, who wrote Black Like Me, which mm. I'd read my sister's copy, must have been the 60s. I can't really remember what I thought of it, but this is a story of a man who was, interestingly, I discovered much later on, he was actually a sociologist, mm. and he was asked to write something about why so many young black men committed suicide in the South. And so he went off and he talked to a lot of, you know, black elders, uh, people in positions in the community who he thought could, you know, help him through interviews understand this um, phenomenon. And, you know, one after the other, they said to him, look, mate, you're not going to understand until you actually wake up with a black skin. So this went on. So he thought, OK, if that's the only way, I'll do it. So then the black like me is a, is a story of his experiment. He darkens his skin and sort of sets out in the guise of being an African-American traveling around in the South mm. in the 1950s and writes this very powerful book. You know, the book's obviously been very controversial at different times, but it was a bestseller. It was translated into lots of different languages. 
and it's still read today. I think it's still read in, in, in American high schools. Uh, John Howard Giffen himself is, is, a, is a hugely interesting figure, and obviously he went on to do other things, and he was very involved in the civil rights movement. And this was just one of several things that he did. And he also wrote a book called A Time to Be Human, in which he goes back and talks about this experiment. And he also talks about his formation and when he absolutely came to understand what racism did and what it, what it, what it was. He goes back to a time in the, in the war when he was in France in the 1940s. And he was involved in a, a kind of form of safe housing, Jewish refugees. And he said there was a moment where they were somewhere in the middle of France and the German army was sort of approaching and they had housed these Jewish families in cheap boarding houses. And the news came that actually they were, they were beat. There was nothing they could do. And he came to the room and he, he knew from the, the refugees' faces that they also understood. Mm. And they basically said, look, take our kids. Leave us, but take our kids, because kids under 15 could travel mm-hmm. without papers. And he writes about the color of the wallpaper in this cheap boarding house and his kind of absolute realization that this is what for all the talks they'd had about Hitler, you know, on American campuses and things, mm-hmm. all the talks they'd had about fascism and, and anti-Semitism, he had not really got it. This is what mm-hmm. it led to. And so he goes back to that moment and then he connects it up later on with other experiences of interviewing mothers whose sons had been killed by the police, for example, mm-hmm. and sitting in a room with them, sitting in a room and remembering that and making those connections and sort of saying people are not going to understand until they've been in this room. So it's kind of complicated because it, you know, it's almost about an emotional, intuitive, imaginative leaps that you can't prescribe. You can't just sort of tell people to go off and do it. But it's about essentially asking someone to imagine what it's like to be someone else you know, when it kind of boils down to what you write on your placard or, or, or you're given a role that you have to inhabit, you know, like being an ally or, mm. or someone who can never really understand, but you can be supportive. You know, there's maybe steps on the way somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the point about race traitor was that, and I sort of think about this in relation to the, to the sort of instructions that people like Lillian Smith, you know, who wrote in the 1940s about how to resist and how to try and change the system of segregation. That was in the 1940s. But, you know, in the, in the 1990s, uh, Ray Strater also had sets of instructions, like what do you do to abolish whiteness? One of their sort of, the ways they could measure whether whiteness was being abolished was really when the police were attacking people on the barricades, whether they didn't make any distinction between black and white, then you've abolished whiteness. <laughs> That was, and it was quite macho, you know, it's quite, yeah, yeah. you forget the placards, it's all about actually sort of weapons and fists and, and petrol bombs. But no, I'm, I'm glad that you said that, that it's a step, that it's a step on the way, because I think, I think you're right. I think this is a real energy among a lot of young people who were on the street, who were people who are racialized as white, who were sort of, you know, taken to the street, maybe for the first time, really trying to offer support to something that they cared about. I, I suppose I'm just intrigued by the fact that, that the recognition of one's privilege is foregrounded ahead of what it is you're struggling against and struggling towards. That's all I find. I, I suppose I just find that kind of interesting and maybe something about how the languages of around whiteness have become so familiar and whether that... I mean, it's not that there's anything wrong with saying um, silence is violence or I don't understand, so I silent necessarily. It's more that it seems to me a reminder that these people probably don't know exactly what it what it takes and how, you know, I suppose how much struggle there is involved against the forces we're up against and we're in it together rather than be a kind of positioning as oneself as different. Because I feel like at that moment in a protest, the point is that we're here and we're on the same kind of, we are the force against the thing we are protesting rather than, you know, let me make clear my distinction. I'm not claiming to be black in this situation. I'm not. Well, claiming- exactly. The fact that you're, yeah, you're right. The, the, the fact that you're there. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can never mm. decide what to put on my blackguard. No, exactly. Yeah, no, I can I just, just never decide. I can never decide. It's not funny enough. It's not angry enough. You know, I'm too. I'm too oh, angry to write anything actually. And <laughs> and the fact that you're there and you go along, you sort of. I think. I think being there is is a good start. You know, definitely a good start. And and I and I mean, of course, there were so many signs there. I I just um, it's just intriguing because they tell us something about the time the times and what people understand. Um, I mean, abolish the police, fuck the police. There's a lot of obvious choices that were there that were there too. Um, fuck white supremacy. A lot of these kinds of signs, which, which to me just seemed to do some of that work. And and I wasn't looking for to try and racially work out who the person holding the sign was in that moment. Um, it might be important to them in their interpersonal lives, but it's not. 
in in the particular theater that is a protest it's strange to position oneself racially as white on a placard i just find that slightly it's interesting i agree let's let's go with that it. it's a, it's a step on the way and hopefully a lot of these people are working it working out as they go and they're going to be committed to fighting racism as they carry on okay so maybe we can actually go from here to talk a bit about your book military migrants how did you come to write a book about the army well the simple answer is the iraq war i was living in the states well throughout 2001 mm-hmm. 2002 2003 and it was absolutely terrible time for all kinds of reasons you know politically and i'd been teaching in women's studies and i'd met this cynthia enloe who has been writing about militarization for many years and is mm-hmm. a hugely important figure in fact her book bananas beaches and bases it has some ideas that overlap very much with Beyond the Pale, but I hadn't read it at the time I oh, wrote well. Beyond the Pale, interestingly, and I sort of wish I had. So I, I'd invited her to speak at Yale where I was teaching and, and you know, we obviously talked a lot about what was going on at the time and I drew an enormous amount from her work. Mm-hmm. And she has really brought life to the concept of militarization from a feminist point of view and shown all the connections between, you know, structures of gender and, and race as well in US society and and ways of thinking about the military and military work and military labor. And she sort of unpicked all that. I hadn't realized, and I I don't think anyone had realized how many migrants there were in in the army at that time. And they were literally hoovering them up. You know, there was a history to that. There was a rationale. There was a consequence. And all of that had not really been addressed. So Mm. I spent the next few years going around to different army bases and talking to people. It was, I mean, I wouldn't want to do it again, but it was incredibly valuable. I really felt I learned so much about nationalism, about this country, about the geography of this country, about its institutions, you know, where the colonial past is really concentrated and and stored. It was very, very valuable. I suppose that was one thing. And then I also, I think it was 2010, I was asked to write, I was going to give a talk in Utrecht at the School of Humanities there. I was going to give a talk about the figure of the soldier, which I became obsessed with. Mm. I sat down to write it, and I just realized that in the period between 2007 and 2008, there'd been a number of developments, which when you put them all together, meant that things would never be the same again, and that there was something happening around the figure of the soldier that was trying to reshape British attitudes towards uh, military labor, and to try and bring the military into public view in a way that it hadn't been so I'd, I wrote that up and, um, of course, it turned out to be that was the pivotal moment, you know, when the military covenant was sort of revived, Help for Heroes was founded, Gordon Brown initiated the, the National Recognition of Our Armed Forces Survey, beginning of Armed Forces Day, you know, a number of different things that have happened that now all seem part of the furniture were all being introduced. I read about this first from from you and the series in Open Democracy, which again, I'd encourage people to go and check out, just search Brunware Open Democracy, because you've written a number of short pieces there, which I guess is another part of you trying to get the research that you were doing out into the public conversation, but really important stuff that I sort of missed at the time, I guess. I was too young in my undergraduate and not caring about what Gordon Brown was saying after after a point. But um, but yeah, this this moment when when suddenly there are kind of soldiers being invited into schools and armed forces day and and, and I guess the uptake in, in, in the compulsory wearing of the poppy, because I remember that happening, although I didn't understand the political kind of causes of it, but you know, it became compulsory really quite recently, and then everyone who wears or doesn't wear one is judged, or Jeremy Corbyn's poppy isn't big enough and things like that. So this moment's really important and really recent in which the and you write about it as the military in our midst. Maybe you can say a little bit more about the military in our midst. Developments were happening then. I mean, mm. they've had consequences. So really, I've been trying to think about how to investigate what those changes have meant. I would say as a sort of parenthesis that the, that every major war, period of war, has this sort of, I would say seismic, but like, you know, significant shift in terms of thinking about what is it that military work what's it about what's military service mm. about what is it that mm. we learn from war you know even after the crimean war there's like well what, what you know what is it that soldiers are being asked to do and is there any kind of reward how can we recruit better kind of people rather than sort of right. riffraff how can you know there's a sort of re-evaluation of what it is people are being asked to do how they're trained how they're housed so on and so forth what are the conditions of their of their work and the kind mm. of their contract so a huge upheaval in terms of thinking about how to 
um, how to accommodate the army, you know, particularly families. And this is something I'd learned from Cynthia Enloe and other feminist work in the US. And, and in fact, once I'd heard her talk and I'd sort of think, how can feminists go to the Pentagon and actually advise them on how to, if they want soldiers to retain soldiers who are mostly men, if they want mm. to retain them, they have to ensure that their spouses, who are mainly women, they have to ensure that they are happy with the conditions of life for them as military spouses. Mm. I, they, they can have jobs, they can not live in crap housing, so on and so forth. The current project is really looking at the the reconfiguration of the of the army um, in the light of restructuring, mm. as in reducing the size of the army, reducing the number of soldiers, trying to think about bringing, trying to bring in more part-time soldiers uh, who are basically civilians and therefore won't need won't need housing, won't have the encumbrance of families. So there's a, there's a lot of things happening that out of sight, and I think it's really important to have a study or have a sort of snapshot of what this is actually mean in practice. Mm. So that's what that project is about. It's about a sort of ethnographic, you know, time-limited view of actually a place where there's a, a, a deeper military history, a deeper military kind of grip on that particular area and asking, what does that mean? How does it manifest itself? And what are the new changes? When you have a military um, a, a base, that also brings in a certain amount of diversity into the area, both historically in the area we're looking at, you know, enormous numbers of Australians and Canadians and uh, other sort of, you know, white colonials came to live there mm. during that from 1914 onwards, on and off, mm. you know, Americans. And that leaves a trace. And now you have groups of Fijians and, you know, Ghanaian church and Nepalese and mm. other ethnic groups that you don't wouldn't find in other parts of South Southern England. I know that when I went to Aldershot, I, I was reminded of that. It's interesting places that people don't think about, but where that kind of migration and diversity comes through the armed forces, I just think it opens up lots of interesting questions as you as you point to about citizenship and deservingness and welfare and who belongs and what what contributing might mean. I, I mean, one of the things I've wanted to ask you, I suppose, is that we're probably coming to, to where we should end, but as someone who's kind of opposed to war and to militarism in all its forms, what have been some of the challenges of writing about, about the armed forces? Because I suppose you've gained access partly through negotiating relationships with people, but then, I mean, I'm thinking also of um, the ways in which uh, Joanna Lumley's campaign for the Gurkhas involves kind of certain kinds of ideas about deservingness and belonging and war and honour and soldiering and, and and with the recent case of the Fijians who are who are facing kind of immigration problems, something I'm particularly interested in and facing insecure immigration status despite having served when making an argument for them or supporting them in their arguments. It's really hard not to. Or it's easy to see how a kind of politics of deservingness comes in in a way that's even more sharp than around the Windrush scandal. So I'm just wondering it must have been, I don't know if this is really a question, but it just must have been challenging to work out how to write about and interact with people in, in an institution that most people would just say, oh, well, it's rotten to its core. Yes, it is challenging. And I, when I was writing Military Migrants, if ever I told anyone said, what are you writing on? I said, I'm writing about this. And people would mm. always say, well, they get citizenship, presumably. Absolute assumption that fighting in the army would mean you would get citizenship. And you say, well, no. But then it was more interesting to say, why do you think they should? Yes. And so I kind of dwelt in that area for a while. And, you know, to what extent is it like any other job? To what extent is it like working in the health service, being a key worker somewhere else? Mm. And sort of posing those questions. And one of the things that I was told was that, you know, there was a committee in, in the, the army that would try and sort of represent the migrants and say, look, you know, these guys are really doing their job. They're really great. They need to have, you know, um, they need to feel secure here and not feel like they have to pay all this money for visas. Can you not give them a, a, some sort of concession? Mm. And they said, Home Office always say no. They always say no. You have to really go on and on and on and push them. And the reason that they said no is that they said, if we give in to you and allow soldiers to be different, then what do we say to Indian doctors who say, but we are saving the lives of British people? Mm. And, well, that's their conundrum. You know, that's their conundrum. It's not for me to solve. but. I think by posing those questions and asking about what does it mean, I mean, you know, as well as I do, that a lot of the, you know, programs, commemorative things around colonial troops in the past, people who've been in the armed forces, people of colour who've been in the armed forces in the past and who've won medals, 
you know, they're, they're just as entitled to be spoken about as having, you know, sacrificed their lives or having, you know, deserving our respect and so on and so forth. When you come to the present, if you continue to say that people who serve in the armed forces are doing it for the defence of the country and they're laying down their lives for this country, it all starts to look a little bit more kind of questionable because why is it different and what does it mean? They're not actually defending the country, they're all fighting in another part of the world, doing things that we don't necessarily know about or the reasons why people join the army. And this this, this is true of, of people from um, other countries, people who who you know born and brought up here. There's a whole host of reasons, and they yeah. all, you know, they overlap. You know, there's not like they join for this reason; they join to get citizenship, and these guys join because actually they really want to be in the army. Mm. It's much more complicated than that. I think it just poses these questions that are really important and interesting yeah. um, to think about, and we ha- weren't thinking about them enough before. And you know, I include myself in that. Mm. I mean, one of the things that, that again, Cynthia Enlow always says that in this, this question of if you don't know about something, then you have to ask yourself, why didn't I know about this already? Yeah. You know, not personal failing. It's just like, what what are the mechanisms that make me not know about this? I mean, there are a lot more people thinking about these things now, luckily, and that's partly her influence. There's a lot more, you know, whether you call it critical military studies or, and it kind of, again, becomes part of an academic sort of established discourse or, or, or you know, huge numbers of peace activists. And that's, that's all sort of opening up as well, new generations mm-hmm. of working in different ways and that's really exciting no i think it's a really important area of study and something that really opened my mind up when i read it i mean a lot of the intersections for people thinking about racism and borders actually just come through in such an interesting way in this and also it's an ethnography and it has the strength that ethnographies do because you kind of spend time this doing a thing that most people you know that's difficult to do and that takes work and i think that's really the value of good ethnographic research so i hope that this encourages some people to try and get hold of a copy at their library or wherever wherever they can to think about some of the questions discussed on surviving society from the perspective of the armed forces but i just want to say thanks so much ron for this conversation i've learned a lot uh, we could talk for a lot longer but um we're, we're way over time so thank you so much for your for your time and your contribution and we'll speak soon thanks luke thank you very much Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.